Section 7 of The World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 6, by Various Authors. Section 7. Selected Excerpts from The Privations, by Brillard Savarin. Brillia Savarin, seventeen fifty five to eighteen twenty six. Brillia Savarin was a French magistrate and legislator, whose reputation as man of letters rests mainly upon a single volume, his inimitable Physiologie du Goût. Although writing in the present century, he was essentially a Frenchman of the old regime. Having been born in 1755 at Belly, almost on the borderline of Savoy, where he afterwards gained distinction as an advocate. In later life, he regretted his native province chiefly for its big peckers superior in his opinion to ortolans or robins and for the cuisine of the innkeeper genin where the old timers of belly used to gather to eat chestnuts and drink the new white wine known as van boru after holding various minor offices in his department Savarin became mayor of Belly in 1793, but the reign of terror soon forced him to flee to Switzerland and join the colony of French refugees at Lausanne. Souvenirs of this period are frequent in his Physiologie du Goût, all eminently gastronomic, as befits his subject matter, but full of interest, as showing his unfailing cheerfulness amidst the vicissitudes and privations of exile. He fled first to Dole to obtain from the representative pro a safe conduct, which was to save me from going to prison, and there probably to the scaffold, and which he ultimately owed to Madame Pro with whom he spent the evening playing duets, and who declared, Citizen, any one who cultivates the fine arts as you do cannot betray his country. It was not the safe conduct, however, but an unexpected dinner which he enjoyed on his route, that made this a red-letter day to Savarin. What a good dinner! I will not give the details, 
but an honourable mention is due to a fricassee of chicken of the first order such as cannot be found except in the provinces and so richly dowered with truffles that there were enough to put new life into old tithonus himself the whole episode is told in savarin's happiest vein and well-nigh justifies his somewhat complacent conclusion that any one who with a revolutionary committee at his heels could so conduct himself assuredly has the head and the heart of a frenchman natural scenery did not appeal to savarin to him switzerland meant the restaurant of the lion d'argent at lausanne where for only fifteen bats we passed in review three complete courses the table d'hote of the rue de rosny and the little village of moudon where the cheese fondue was so good circumstances however soon necessitated his departure for the united states which he always gratefully remembered as having afforded him an asylum employment and tranquillity for three years he supported himself in new york giving french lessons and at night playing in a theatre orchestra I was so comfortable there, he writes, that in the moment of emotion which preceded departure, all that I asked of heaven, a prayer which it has granted, was never to know greater sorrow in the old world than I had known in the new. Returning to France in 1796, Savarin settled in Paris, and after holding several offices under the directory, became a judge in the Cour de Cassation, the French court of last resort, where he remained until his death in 1826. Although an able and conscientious magistrate, Savarin was better adapted to play the kindly friend and cordial host than the stern and impartial judge he was a convivial soul a lover of good cheer and free-handed hospitality and to-day while almost forgotten as a jurist his name has become immortalized as the representative of gastronomic excellence his physiologie du goût, that Ola Podrida, which defies analysis, as Balzac calls it, belongs like Walton's complete angler, or White's Selborne, among those unique gems of literature, too rare in any age, which owe their subtle and imperishable charm primarily to the author's own delightful personality. Savarin spent many years of loving care in polishing his manuscript, often carrying it to court with him, where it was one day mislaid, 
but luckily for future generations of epicures, was afterward recovered. The book is a charming badinage, a bizarre ragout of gastronomic precepts and spicy anecdote, doubly piquant for its prevailing tone of mock seriousness and intentional grandiloquence. In emulation of the poet Lamartine, Savarin divided his subject into meditations, of which the seventh is consecrated to the theory of frying, and the twenty-first to corpulence. In the familiar aphorism, Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are, he strikes his keynote. Man's true superiority lies in his palate. The pleasure of eating we have in common with the animals. The pleasure of the table is peculiar to the human species. Gastronomy, he proclaims, the chief of all sciences. It rules life in its entirety, for the tears of the newborn infant summon the breast of its nurse, and the dying man still receives with some pleasure the final potion which, alas, he is not destined to digest. Occasionally he affects an epic strain, invoking Gasteria, the tenth muse, who presides over the pleasures of taste. It is the fairest of the muses who inspires me. I will be clearer than an oracle, and my precepts will traverse the centuries. Beneath his pen, soup, the first consolation of the needy stomach, assumes fresh dignity and even the humble fowl becomes to the cook what the canvas is to the painter, or the cap of Fortunatus to the charlatan. But like the worthy epicure that he was, Savarin reserved his highest flights of eloquence for such rare and toothsome viands as the poulard fan de bresse, the pheasant, an enigma of which the key word is known only to the adepts, a surte of truffles, the diamonds of the kitchen, or best of all truffled turkeys, whose reputation and price are ever on the increase, benign stars whose apparition renders the gourmands of every category sparkling, radiant, and quivering. But the true charm of the book lies in Savarin's endless fund of piquant anecdotes, reminiscences of bygone feasts, over which the reader's mouth waters. Who can read, without a covetous pang, his account of the day at home with the Bernardins? or of his entertainment of the Dubois brothers, a bonbon, which I have put into the reader's mouth to recompense him for his kindness 
in having read me with pleasure. Physiology du Good was not published until 1825, and then anonymously, presumably because he thought its tone inconsistent with his dignity as magistrate. It would almost seem that he had a presentiment of impending death, for in the midst of his brightest variété he has incongruously inserted a dolorous little poem, the burden of each verse being Je vais mourir. The Physiologie du Goût is now accessible to English readers. In the versions of R. E. Anderson, London, 1877, and in a later one published in New York. But there is a subtle flavour to the original, which defies translation. From The Physiology of Taste The Privations First parents of the human species whose gormandizing is historic, you who fell for the sake of an apple, what would you not have done for a turkey with truffles? But there were, in the terrestrial paradise, neither cooks nor confectioners. How I pity you! Mighty kings who laid proud Troy in ruins, your valour will be handed down from age to age, but your table was poor. Reduced to a rump of beef and a chine of pork, you were ever ignorant of the charms of the matelote and the delights of a fricassee of chicken. How I pity you! Aspasia, Chloe, and all of you whose forms the chisel of the Greeks immortalized to the despair of the bells of to-day, never did your charming mouths enjoy the smoothness of a meringue a la vanille or a la rose. Hardly did you rise to the height of a spice-cake. How I pity you! Gentle priestesses of Vesta, at one and the same time burdened with so many honours, and menaced with such horrible punishments, would that you might at least have tasted those agreeable syrups which refresh the soul, those candied fruits which brave the seasons, those perfumed creams, the marvel of our day. How I pity you! Roman financiers, who made the whole known universe pay tribute, never did your far-famed banquet-halls witness the appearance of those succulent jellies, the delight of the indolent, nor those varied ices whose cold would brave the torrid zone. How I pity you! Invincible paladins, celebrated by flattering minstrels, when you had cleft in twain the giants, 
set free the ladies, and exterminated armies. Never, alas, never did a dark-eyed captive offer you the sparkling champagne, the malmsey of Madeira, the liqueurs, creation of this great century. You were reduced to ale, or to some cheap herb-flavoured wine. How I pity you! Croziered and mitred abbots, dispensers of the favours of heaven, and you terrible Templars, who donned your armour for the extermination of the Saracens, you knew not the sweetness of chocolate which restores, nor the Arabian bean which promotes thought. How I pity you! Superb Chatelains, who during the loneliness of the Crusades raised into highest favour your chaplains and your pages, you never could share with them the charms of the biscuit and the delights of the macaroon. How I pity you! And lastly you, gastronomers of 1825, who already find satiety in the lap of abundance, and dream of new preparations, you will not enjoy those discoveries which the sciences have in store for the year 1900, such as esculent minerals, and liqueurs resulting from a pressure of a hundred atmospheres, you will not behold the importations which travellers yet unborn shall cause to arrive from that half of the globe which still remains to be discovered or explored. How I pity you! On the Love of Good Living I have consulted the dictionaries under the word gourmandise, and am by no means satisfied with what I find. The love of good living seems to be constantly confounded with gluttony and veracity, whence I infer that our lexicographers, however otherwise estimable, are not to be classed with those good fellows amongst learned men who can put away gracefully a wing of partridge, and then, by raising the little finger, wash it down with a glass of Lafitte, or clove Vougiot. They have utterly forgot that social love of good eating, which combines in one Athenian elegance, Roman luxury, and Parisian refinement. It implies discretion to arrange skill to prepare, it appreciates energetically, and judges profoundly. It is a precious quality, almost deserving to rank as a virtue, and is very certainly the source of much unqualified enjoyment. Gourmandise, or the love of good living, 
is an impassioned, rational. Gormandise, or the love of good living, is an impassioned, rational, and habitual preference for whatever flatters the sense of taste. It is opposed to excess. Therefore, every man who eats to indigestion, or makes himself drunk, runs the risk of being erased from the list of its votaries. Gormandise also comprises a love for dainties or titbits, which is merely an analogous preference, limited to light, delicate or small dishes, to pastry and so forth. It is a modification allowed in favour of the women, or men of feminine tastes. Regarded from any point of view, the love of good living deserves nothing but praise and encouragement. Physically, it is the result and proof of the digestive organs being healthy and perfect. Morally, it shows implicit resignation to the commands of nature, who, in ordering man to eat that he may live, gives him appetite to invite, flavour to encourage, and pleasure to reward. From the political economist's point of view, the love of good living is a tie between nations, uniting them by the interchange of various articles of food which are in constant use. Hence the voyage from pole to pole, of wines, sugars, fruits, and so forth. What else sustains the hope and emulation of that crowd of fishermen, huntsmen, gardeners, and others, who daily stock the most sumptuous larders with the results of their skill and labour? What else supports the industrious army of cooks, pastry-cooks, confectioners, and many other food-preparers, with all their various assistants. These various branches of industry derive their support in a great measure from the largest incomes, but they also rely upon the daily wants of all classes. As society is at present constituted, it is almost impossible to conceive of a race living solely on bread and vegetables. Such a nation would infallibly be conquered by the armies of some flesh-eating race, like the Hindus, who have been the prey of all those one after another who cared to attack them, or else it would be converted by the cooking of the neighbouring nations as ancient history records of the Boeotians, who acquired a love for good living after the battle of Lutre. Good living opens out great resources for replenishing the public purse. It brings contributions to town dues, to the custom-house, and other indirect contributions. Everything we eat is taxed, and there is no exchequer that is not substantially supported by lovers of good living. Shall we speak of that swarm of cooks, who have for ages been annually leaving France to improve foreign nations in the art of good living? 
most of them succeed, and in obedience to an instinct which never dies in a Frenchman's heart, bring back to their country the fruits of their economy. The sum thus imported is greater than might be supposed, and therefore they, like the others, will be honoured by posterity. But if nations were grateful, then Frenchmen, above all other races, ought to raise a temple and altar to gourmandise. By the Treaty of November 1815, the Allies imposed upon France the condition of paying thirty million sterling in three years, besides claims for compensation and various requisitions, amounting to nearly as much more. The apprehension, or rather certainty, became general that a national bankruptcy must ensue, more specially as the money was to be paid in specie. Alas! said all who had anything to lose, as they saw the fatal tumbrel pass to be filled in the Rue Vivienne. There is our money emigrating in a lump. Next year we shall fall on our knees before a crown piece. We are about to fall into the condition of a ruined man. Speculations of every kind will fail. It will be impossible to borrow. There will be nothing but weakness, exhaustion, civil death. These terrors were proved false by the result, and to the great astonishment of all engaged in financial matters. The payments were made without difficulty, credit rose, loans were eagerly caught at, and during all the time this superpurgation lasted, the balance of exchange was in favour of France. In other words, more money came into the country than went out of it. What is the power that came to our assistance? Who is the divinity that worked this miracle? The love of good living. When the Britons, Germans, Teutons, Cimmerians, and Scythians made their eruption into France, they brought a rare veracity, and stomachs of no ordinary capacity. They did not long remain satisfied with the official cheer which a forced hospitality had to supply them with. They aspired to enjoyments of greater refinement, and soon the Queen City was nothing but a huge refectory. Everywhere they were seen eating, those intruders. In the restaurants, the eating-houses, the inns, the taverns, the stalls, and even in the streets, they gorged themselves with flesh, fish, game, truffles, pastry, and especially with fruit. They drank with an avidity equal to their appetite, and always ordered the most expensive wines, in the hope of finding in them some enjoyment hitherto unknown, and seemed quite astonished when they were disappointed. Superficial observers did not know what to think 
of this menagerie without bounds or limits, but your genuine Parisian laughed and rubbed his hands. We have them now, said he, and to-night they'll have paid us back more than was counted out to them this morning from the public treasury. That was a lucky time for those who provide for the enjoyments of the sense of taste. Varey made his fortune, Achard laid the foundation of his, Beauvilliers made a third, and Madame Soulot, whose shop in the Palais Royal was a mere box of a place, sold as many as twelve thousand tarts a day. The effect still lasts. Foreigners flow in from all quarters of Europe to renew during peace the delightful habits which they contracted during the war. They must come to Paris, and when they are there they must be regaled at any price. If our funds are in favour, it is due not so much to the higher interest they pay as to the instinctive confidence which foreigners cannot help placing in a people amongst whom every lover of good living finds so much happiness. Love of good living is by no means unbecoming in women. It agrees with the delicacy of their organization, and serves as a compensation for some pleasures which they are obliged to abstain from, and for some hardships to which nature seems to have condemned them. There is no more pleasant sight than a pretty gourmand under arms. Her napkin is nicely adjusted, one of her hands rests on the table, the other carries to her mouth little morsels artistically carved, or the wing of a partridge which must be picked. Her eyes sparkle, her lips are glossy, her talk is cheerful, all her movements graceful, nor is there lacking some spice of the coquetry which accompanies all that women do. With so many advantages she is irresistible, and Cato the censor himself could not help yielding to the influence. The love of good living is in some sort instinctive in women, because it is favourable to beauty. It has been proved by a series of rigorously exact observations that by a succulent delicate and choice regimen. The external appearances of age are kept away for a long time. It gives more brilliancy to the eye, more freshness to the skin, more support to the muscles. And as it is certain in physiology that wrinkles, those formidable enemies of beauty, are caused by the depression of muscle. It is equally true that other things being equal, those who understand eating 
are comparatively four years younger than those ignorant of that science. Painters and sculptors are deeply impenetrated with this truth, for in representing those who practice abstinence by choice or duty, as misers or anchorites, they always give them the pallor of disease, the leanness of misery, and the wrinkles of decrepitude. Good living is one of the main links of societies, by gradually extending that spirit of conviviality by which different classes are daily brought closer together and welded into one whole, by animating the conversation and rounding off the angles of conventional inequality. To the same cause we can also ascribe all the efforts a host makes to receive his guests properly, as well as their gratitude for his pains so well bestowed. What disgrace should ever be heaped upon those senseless feeders who with unpardonable indifference swallow down morsels of the rarest quality, or gulp with unrighteous carelessness some fine-flavoured and sparkling wine. As a general maxim, whoever shows a desire to please will be certain of having a delicate compliment paid him by every well-bred man. Again, when shared, the love of good living has the most marked influence on the happiness of the conjugal state. A wedded pair, with this taste in common, have once a day at least a pleasant opportunity of meeting, for even when they sleep apart, and a great many do so, they at least eat at the same table. They have a subject of conversation which is ever new. They speak not only of what they are eating, but also of what they have eaten, or will eat, of dishes which are in vogue, of novelties, etc. Everybody knows that a familiar chat is delightful. Music, no doubt, has powerful attractions for those who are fond of it, but one must set about it. It is an exertion. Besides, one sometimes has a cold, the music is mislaid, the instruments are out of tune, one has a fit of the blues, or it is a forbidden day, whereas, in the other case, a common want summons the spouses to table, the same inclination keeps them there, they naturally show each other these little attentions as a proof of their wish to oblige, and the mode of conducting their meals has a great share in the happiness of their lives. This observation, though new in France, has not escaped the notice of Richardson, the English moralist. He has worked out the idea in his novel Pamela by painting the different manner in which two married couples finish their day. 
The first husband is a lord, an eldest son, and therefore heir to all the family property. The second is his younger brother, the husband of Pamela, who has been disinherited on account of his marriage, and lives on half-pay, in a state but little removed from abject poverty. The lord and lady enter their dining-room by different doors, and salute each other coldly, though they have not met the whole day before. Sitting down at a table which is magnificently covered, surrounded by lackeys in brilliant liveries, they help themselves in silence and eat without pleasure. As soon, however, as the servants have withdrawn, a sort of conversation is begun between the pair, which quickly shows a bitter tone, passing into a regular fight, and they rise from the table in a fury of anger, and go off to their separate apartments, to reflect upon the pleasures of a single life. The younger brother, on the contrary, is on reaching his unpretentious home, received with a gentle, loving heartiness, and the fondest caresses. He sits down to a frugal meal, but everything he eats is excellent, and how could it be otherwise? It is Pamela herself who has prepared it all. They eat with enjoyment, talking of their affairs, their plans, their love for each other. A half-bottle of Madeira serves to prolong their repast and conversation, and soon after they retire together, to forget in sleep their present hardships, and to dream of a better future. All honour to the love of good living, such as it is the purpose of this book to describe, so long as it does not come between men and their occupations or duties. For as all the debaucheries of a Sardanapalus cannot bring disrespect upon womankind in general, so the excesses of a Vitalius need not make us turn our backs upon a well-appointed banquet. Should the love of good living pass into gluttony, veracity, intemperance, it then loses its name and advantages, escapes from our jurisdiction, and falls within that of the moralist, to ply it with good counsel, or of the physician, who will cure it by his remedies. End of section 7